Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. And welcome. I'm Bruce Bond, co-founder and CEO of Common Ground Committee, and we are so pleased to be co-presenting USC's Climate Forward Conference 2023, Bridging Divides, Sharing Solutions, with the U.S. Wrigley Institute for Environmental Studies and the USC Dornsife Center for the Political Future. We are also very pleased that this event is part of this year's National Week of Conversation. And on behalf of all of my colleagues at Common Ground Committee and our media partner, the Christian Science Monitor, thank you all for being with us today. We are a nonpartisan, nonprofit, citizen-led organization bringing light, not heat, to public discourse and working to bring healing to the challenges of unhealthy discourse and polarization that challenge our nation. This is our 20th public forum, and this first discussion will focus on finding common ground on the politics of climate. So let's get right to it. We have an incredible panel for you today. I'm thrilled to introduce our moderator, who is a truly legendary political strategist. For decades, he has been one of the most influential voices of the Democratic Party. Please give a warm welcome to the director of the USC Dornsife Center for the Political Future, and the Carmen H. and Lewis Warshaw Chair in Practical Politics, Bob Shrum. And next, our highly esteemed guests. He served for six terms as a U.S. Representative for Illinois and sat on the Energy and Commerce Committee, as well as the Foreign Affairs Committee. He was one of two Republicans who served on the Nonpartisan Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, strengthening U.S. energy policy and making our nation less reliant on foreign resources was a top priority for him while he was in Congress. Please welcome Adam Kinzinger. She served as a United States representative for Florida from 2016 to 2022, where she gained a reputation as a tireless champion for public safety, civil rights, and the rule of law. Prior to that, she served 27 years in the Orlando Police Department, rising through the ranks to become the city's first female chief of police in 2007. In Congress, she served on the House Committees on the Judiciary, Intelligence, Government Oversight and Reform, and Homeland Security, and she was on Joe Biden's shortlist for vice president in 2020. Please welcome Val Demings. Thank you again for being with us. Bob, the floor is yours. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, I'm deeply grateful to the Common Ground Committee, which does such extraordinary work seeking to transcend the divisions in America for partnering with us and with the Wrigley Institute for this Climate Forward Conference. The center has been privileged to partner with you before, Bruce, and your contributions, the common ground contributions, elevate and enrich our work. I'm thrilled to be here with two extraordinary people today, both of whom I very much admire, even though they're in different political parties, (laughs) one of them different than mine. We will engage with each other for about an hour, 
and then we'll have a half an hour for questions from the audience, including from students who are watching remotely at High Point University in North Carolina. Let me begin with this. Any rational debate about whether climate change is real has ended. Our climate is changing. And according to NOAA, there were 18 major climate events in 2022, ranging from extreme heat and drought to heavy rains and flash floods, hurricanes, tropical storms, wildfires. And we've certainly felt the impact of all of that here in California. On March 20th, following the release of its latest climate report, which Dean Miller referred to, the United Nations official said, the rate of temperature rise in the last half century is the highest in 2,000 years. And added, concentrations of carbon dioxide are at their highest in at least 2 million years. The climate time bomb is ticking. He urged developed nations to commit to reaching net zero emissions by an earlier date, around 2040. The question now is how quickly can and should we transition and at what cost? Our panelists may bring different views about how to best navigate this complicated path to transition, sustainability, and equity. So let me start with this first question. You both just left Congress. Big picture. What are the core issues driving the debate between the two parties about the climate crisis? Is the need for urgency part of that debate? Representative Kinzinger? Hi, everybody. It's great to be here, by the way. And uh, it's great to be here with you, Bob and Val. Um, And it's, uh, yeah, thanks. Okay, so to answer the question, I do think the debate over is climate change real is over. Now, that doesn't mean it's over for everybody, right? And I think one of the fears I have is I'm starting to see a little bit of it kind of in the, particularly in the Republican side, creep up again. You know, a little bit more of, okay, we had this settled for maybe a year, and now you're starting to see this group come out and say, well, maybe it's all fake, or it's not real, or it's nothing we can do about it. So that is a concern, and it is a concern to me about people understanding the urgency of this and the seriousness of this moment. But I also think if we, you know, in the theme of common ground, if we look at where we are, I think we're in much greater agreement between Republicans and Democrats and everybody in Congress particularly than we've been in a very long time. Now, there's a lot that I'm sure we're going to explore in terms of what are those agreements, what are those areas of disagreements. Uh, But yes, I think the recognition is there that we have to do something. The question is, what can we do and what can the world do, not just the United States, I think. Representative Deming. Bob, thank you, and good afternoon, everybody. And it is absolutely wonderful uh, to be here with you and with my former colleague, Adam, and with you, Bob. Uh, How quickly should we transition? You know, and I think when I've talked about climate change with some of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, there was always the debate about cost. Yes, I do think we're at a point where we all agree this is a crisis and we need to do something about it. But the question of cost, I've even heard some question the science. And we really get into a a complicated area when we start uh, doing that. What I have said to my colleagues when they talk about cost is, yeah, we can talk about cost because when we transition to something better in this country, it always comes with cost. But we have to ask ourselves about the cost of doing nothing. When I think about our communities, I think the bottom line is this, and I think Adam and I would both agree on this, that every community, regardless of who they are, the color of their skin, how much money they have, what zip code they live in, deserve to live in a community 
where they have clean air and fresh water that is affordable. That is the common ground where we can agree. Uh, but getting to the, you know, to the bottom line of, okay, if we agree that we've got to do something about this crisis, I'm from Florida. I certainly know about, uh, some say Florida's ground zero uh, as it pertains to climate change, global warming. Now that we agree on that, the American people send us to Congress and all of the lawmakers at all levels to solve problems and to do something about it. And that's what we need to do. I want to follow up on what you were both talking about in terms of common ground. Your comment, there seems to be some creeping up in the Republican Party of skepticism on this issue again. Mm -hmm. According to the Pew Research, 42% of all adults now view climate change as a top priority. But that number is 54% for young people, 65% for Democrats, but only 11% for Republicans. Is this lack of consensus one of the barriers to taking effective action? Yes. I mean, I think that's part of it. If, if you ask somebody, what is your top priority, and somebody doesn't agree with you, it's going to be hard to come to, to action on that. Now, I think it's interesting because in polling, a lot of the times you run into of, if you ask somebody, is climate change a problem? you'll probably get 80% yes, let's just say, theoretically. Then the question is, what is the top problem that you consider right now to our existence in essence? And that's where you get the difference. Maybe Democrats lean more towards climate change. Republicans may say more towards whatever the issue is of the day. So I do think it's a barrier. I think the biggest barrier to action, though, Bob, is not necessarily a disagreement on this issue. It's how does base politics work? Everything you have to do in Congress and in politics today is to get through a primary. And what you've seen, particularly in my party, is that the primary becomes whoever says the most extreme thing, that now becomes the baseline for what everybody else has to believe. You know, if you go to a Lincoln Day dinner, which is like all the Republican groups would get together, that's how they'd fundraise. Uh, I could go there and listen to like what 2% of the people were talking about and know that when I went there next year, that's going to be what 80% of the people are talking about. And so when it comes to climate change, there may be this agreement that yes, climate change is an issue. But then somebody comes along and says, actually, that's the deep state that's telling you that that's an issue. And so that becomes then the baseline for discussion. And that's why leadership is important because you know what? If you, if you don't have people that stand up in that community as Republicans, for instance, and say, no, it is an issue. Do you care about your children? You do, okay? It is an issue. Do you care about the United States leading the world in energy for the next 100 years? Then we have to lead the world in this part of energy for the next 100 years. It's how you talk about it. But if your response is, well, I was at a Lincoln Day dinner and they said climate change isn't real, so I'm not going to talk about it, or I'm going to avoid it, or I'm going to pretend like it's not real, nothing gets done. Yeah, maybe they should change the name of the dinner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Bob, I, I have to think about when I served as a law enforcement officer and, and, and certainly as the chief of police, I could not tell you of the political party of the overwhelming majority of men and women that I worked with. Now, certainly I had my ideas about who was who, but I did not know. Uh, we had a mission and we were laser focused on accomplishing that mission, the safety and security of the people in our community was our primary concern. When we talk about this very important issue of climate change, the safety and security of the American people should be our primary concern. 
Uh, Bob, you talked about the majority, there's an overwhelming majority of young people who believe that this is a serious issue that is a crisis. But if we think about historically in our nation, some of our greatest accomplishments, it was always the majority of young people <laughs> who thought that this was an issue that needed to um, move forward. And so, you know, as a member of the Homeland Security Committee, we looked at the threat of climate change as a national security uh, issue. And it is. And so there are just certain things that should be out of the political realm. Look, we can talk about a lot of things, Adam and I have, and with some of our other colleagues on both sides of the aisle that we did not agree on. But when it comes to the health and safety and well-being, safety and security of the American people, that should never be one of those things that politics will impede. And certainly, uh, we listen as, he, as elected individuals. We're going to listen and pay attention to our constituents, right? Of course we are. We're going to accept feedback and listen to what they have to say. But in the area of safety, we've seen what climate change has done. We've seen what global warming is doing. This should be one of those issues that rises above politics, and we as elected officials should lead the discussion in our communities, in our district, for the American people, and quite frankly, um, lead around the world. So you talked about your conversations with colleagues across the aisle. Did you find that there were folks in the House who knew this was a big problem, but for the very reasons that Adam talked about, were unwilling to speak out about it? Uh, You know, look, when I went to Congress, I took that same spirit and attitude that doesn't really matter what political party you're in. We have always been a strong two-party system. I think we need that, right, to come up with the best agenda uh, for the American people. But I can remember talking to some of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle after some of the votes that we had taken. And it seemed like the votes were so far out there. And these colleagues were reasonable people. Uh, I remember going into the office of one of them. I walked in and closed the door and said, what was that? (laughs) Why did you just vote for that? You cannot believe in what you just voted in favor of. And you know what he said to me? He said, Val, you don't understand. They come to my house. They threaten my family. They go to the schools and threaten our children. No, I, I, I don't agree with the legislation in its current form. But what am I supposed to do? Now, my first thought was to say, vote for what you know is right. But I had to stop and think about because the why is so very important, right? Threatening his family, I, it was something I could not ignore that. And so the bottom line is finding and creating opportunities where we as colleagues, regardless of our politics, can sit down and have a good, decent, honest conversation about the issues and then find that common ground where we can move something, maybe not everything, but something forward. Adam, before I move on, you have anything to add to that? Yeah. I mean, I think what's, what's essential here is to recognize, I think if you took, let's take the average voter on the right, the average voter on the left, the average voter in the center, okay? And they represented 80% of the American political spectrum. And every one of those people had an opportunity to push a button that simply magically turned us into a country that uses green energy and not carbon-based energy. I think they would all push that button. 
Why do I say that? And why is it important to say that? Because the goal, I think, of a lot of people, even if maybe some on the right don't prioritize it as highly, the end state goal is the same. There's exceptions, of course. But generally, the end state goal is the same. The question on that is, and where the disagreement, I think, is sometimes between the parties is, how do we get there? We actually may even agree on how to get there. We talk past each other on the motivation sometimes. But it's how do we get there? How quickly can we get there? And how can we do that? You know, is it through government action? Is it through the free market? Is it through some mix of the same? And I've actually been a little heartened over the last few years to see that there is, particularly in my party now, a recognition that you can be pro-doing something about climate change and survive. There are some pretty brave brave Republicans in some cases, right? <laughs> Not many of them, but that, that talk about climate change as a priority. And so I think a lot of the disagreement, a lot of the areas we have, to, we have to figure out is, look, I could sit here and say, you know, Val and I disagree on this one issue, and we can debate it. You're not going to convince me, and I'm not going to convince you. But we could also discover where actually do we agree and what can we move forward. And I got to tell you, on that issue, on the issue of guns in this country, on all these issues, if we can begin to move forward on immigration, I mean, I could lay out a plan that 80% of you agree on on immigration. The problem is neither side wants to talk about it. And by the way, that's particularly for you young folks, that's your job because you are going to be the generation that saves this country. It's not going to be us. Okay, let's talk about the legislation that Congress has actually been able to pass. Uh, Here's Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm laying out the Biden administration's climate strategy through three bills passed last year in the last two years uh, during the Biden administration. As you know, we have passed the most ambitious climate and clean energy laws in United States history. I call the bipartisan, this is my, how I refer to it, the bipartisan infrastructure law is really sort of the backbone of the president's strategy because it really invests in the, in the frame, the scaffolding of our nation's clean energy infrastructure, including our electric grid and next generation technologies like clean hydrogen or long duration storage or carbon dioxide removal. Some of you are are really familiar with those. Uh, These technologies are all going to be located in large scale demonstrations in communities across the country. Many of your cities are already involved in these applications. So that's the first bill. The backbone. The second is the chips and science, which is, of course, the brain, which strengthens our competitiveness by, by boosting domestic semiconductor manufacturing and driving innovation. And those are going to be factories all across the country, too. And some of you have experienced that. And then the third is the Inflation Reduction Act, which really is the lungs of the strategy because it breathes life into the clean energy economy through what I think are irresistible financial incentives for families and for businesses to adopt clean energy technologies and save money. So altogether, these three laws form really a modern industrial strategy because they're going to create millions of jobs and they're going to bring supply chains home. They're going to give American families more breathing room. They're going to give our planet a fighting chance. Okay, let's show everyone how you both voted on these three bills. We see some common ground here. Uh, (laughs) Let's focus on the climate-related portion of these bills. Congressman, 
Kensinger, why were you opposed to the Inflation Reduction Act? Was your was your opposition climate related? No, it wasn't climate related. Look, every I think I was the only guy to vote for the Chip and Science Act, actually, as a Republican, by the way. I'm just throw that out there. <laughs> That's the only reason it can be called bipartisan. Um, you know, and I had worked on a significant part of that bill, and I, I as a what I will go on this theme as a Lincoln Republican, I believe in the the role of the federal government. I believe in the role of building infrastructure, right? I think that's that's an extremely essential role when you talk about interstate commerce. Uh, so my opposition to the Inflation Reduction Act isn't it had nothing to do with the environmental stuff. Generally, look, in 12 years of Congress, I have learned one thing. Every bill has really good stuff in it. Every bill has really bad stuff in it, right? And you can always find a reason to fo- vote for or against anything. And so every decision you make has to be on the basis of kind of weighing those options. So sure, with the Inflation Reduction Act, there was a lot of stuff in there I liked. I liked the cap on on, uh, prescription drugs in some areas. I liked the investment in green technology. But you have to sit here and look and say, okay, I have to weigh the fact that we have $31 trillion in debt in this country. We We are $31 trillion in debt. How do we both make wise spending decisions, but also say, how do we encourage, which by the way, one of the greatest amazing things that doesn't get talked about enough in this country is the fact that the private sector has stepped up and made money and invested in reducing America's carbon output. And uh, and so there's a debate between what role does the government play in that and what role does private sector. So yeah, you just have to, every one of these bills, you have to sit and you have to weigh and say, I'm going to go this way. Yeah, I'm going to follow up on that in a minute. But first, I want to ask Representative Demings, how far... Why did did I vote for all three? No. (laughs) (laughs) How far did these three bills get us uh, toward meeting the challenge of the climate crisis? You you know, Bob, thank you for that question. And, and, And there is no doubt we still have a ways to go, right? But as the Secretary summed up very nicely, the Inflation Reduction Act is the most aggressive uh, clean energy legislation uh, in the history of this nation, uh, investing in clean energy, uh, investing in environmental justice. We haven't even talked about the effects of climate change and global warming on underserved communities. We will, I promise. <laughs> for for uh, decades. So, no, we are not where we need to be, Bob. We still have a ways to go. What's that saying? We didn't get here overnight, so we certainly can't solve it. But the most aggressive legislation in the history of our nation, and and cost is always a concern, Adam, Um, and the private sector does have a major role to play and plays a major role in this, but government, good government, has to uh, lead the way. So you think about the number of jobs that will be created over this decade period, $370 billion investment. Um, no, we're not where we need to be, but doggone it, we're sure on the right track. I'm proud of the legislation. So let's go to what you were both just talking about. It, it seems obvious to me that some governmental climate regime or regulatory structure is needed to systematically reduce carbon emissions and reach goals like the ones set a few years ago in Paris. To each of you, what is your view of the role of government, its limits, and its relationship to the private sector and state and local efforts? Val, you want to start? 
Um, look, as a former police chief, uh, we were always better and wiser when we uh, worked along with our federal and state uh, partners. Uh, if we're talking about improving the quality of life for people across this country, then it has got to be a whole of government approach, but it's got to be an approach that includes all sectors. Um, we Again, we all have a role to play. And so, as I said earlier, the health, safety, and well-being of the American people, that is government's responsibility to ensure. There will always be a debate about government going too far and overreach of government. Let's have that a debate. But those things that improve the quality of life, health, safety, and well-being, that's our or Congress's <laughs> Uh, responsibility, government's responsibility at all levels. Yeah, I think it's a good question. I, I want to go back to what we were just talking about, though, because I think on this common ground event, it's important to note, you know, we, we focused a lot on the fact that I voted against the Inflation Reduction Act. I would vote that way again. But we didn't talk much about the fact that in those other two bills, there's a lot of common ground that can be achieved. That's true. And I think in this country, too much in, in politics, because frankly, it sells new p- newspapers, it, it sells TV time. We focus on what all that division and, 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 and stuff is. When we always have, it's much better to make some progress that we can all agree on than no progress and have everybody upset. And Bob, if I could say something along that, I think one of the mistakes that we do make is when we're trying to solve problems is we start with where we disagree. It's ever before us. It's always before us, right? Where we disagree. And sometimes, depending on the issue, it's hard to get past that issue. We never get to a point where we agree because we get bogged down in where we disagree. That can really cause emotions to be pretty high. I think we should start every discussion, and we've certainly worked hard on that in our political careers, and I think it would benefit others, too, to start where you agree. Define those issues where you agree, and then decide, how can I improve on those areas, and then go into other areas uh, from there? Yeah, and I think, look, it's recognizing in this country that if you want everybody to think like you, you're not going to be very effective in democracy. The hardest form of government, I've said this I think now three times today because I, I, I'm so passionate about it. the hardest form of government in the world is self-government. I actually think having a dictator is way easier. It's way more relaxing. You don't have to make any decisions. You don't have to come here because you have no input on what the future of your country is. You just get to eat, drink, and be merry, right? Self-governance is hard. The hard part about self-governance is recognizing that people that think very differently than you also exist, Right? It's hard. It's hard for all of us. And I think that's where the tendency to talk about what divides us and what makes differences there. In terms of my view on this uh, issue, you talk about what is the role of government and climate. Government, private sector, state and local. I view it as government's best job that it can do is incentivizing. It can incentivize. um, Let's take solar, for instance. Let's take wind, production tax credits probably could not have existed on their own without the government providing incentives for wind and solar to come forward and to exist now as a thriving industry. 
that is an important role for government in my mind, figuring out energy grid issues. So we talk about green energy. What some of the difficulties with solar and wind? Well, you can't control when the sun's out. You can't control when the wind blows. And we don't have the ability to massively store energy yet. Maybe we'll never get there. Maybe we will. This is what a lot of this uh, development is happening. But the government can come forward and say, how about, for instance, peaker plants? What are peaker plants? They're the plants that come online when energy is needed. They come down when green is producing. They use natural gas, which is a much cleaner source of energy than you know typical carbon-based. It's not clean, but it's cleaner. And so being able to overall have a government that can strategize things like grid issues, things like transmission issues, things like incentivizing new technology, things like, by the way, what is the cleanest form of baseload energy? It's nuclear power. You know, Germany shut down all their nuclear plants, which is why they had to build Nord Stream 1 and 2. And that made them, up until recently, reliant on Russia for energy. So it's, it's thinking through those. That's what I consider, frankly, the role of the government to be, is kind of that overseer and thinker, because the free market can, if you say, hey, we want to incentivize a new way to store energy, I believe the free market is really good at figuring that out, because they can make money at it and they can invest in it. But where there's not a profit incentive, that's where the government, I think, has a role to play in those overall strategies. Is that a, a place where you would agree? Government is I, setting the incentives? I think government setting the incentives is a part of it. As I said earlier, state, local, federal government working together and the private sector plays a role in that. I think having incentives for the private sector is a major way to get their um, participation and buy-in. But when I talked about a whole of government approach, it's not just on the private sector because they don't have the responsibility of the health, safety, and well-being of the American people. They are a partner, though, uh, in the process, working together. I think the bottom line, um, what Adam is saying, is that working together, we can uh, make a difference. Okay, let's turn to climate justice, which you mentioned a few minute, minutes ago. Uh, Low-income areas are hit harder by climate disasters, affected more strongly by climate change. How can this be addressed through environmental legislation or regulation so that we achieve some measure of climate justice in this country? If you are an elected official at any level of government and you don't care about that, shame on you. For decades... There are underprivileged, low-income areas, predominantly of black and brown people in this country, who have been affected for decades as a result of the lack of attention in, in terms of economic justice. We've seen it in the, on the news. We've heard about the highways that were built through black and brown communities and cause health issues for families living in their, those communities. How many times and how many communities have we heard about the quality of the drinking water? Now, there are just some things you shouldn't have to worry about because we are in office dealing with, or were, dealing with those problems. But here we are in the 2000s and 2022, 2023, hearing about children in Michigan who do not have access to clean drinking water. 
problems over and over and over again. Now, Bob, if you are in holding up a seat in office, I don't care what party you're in. How can that not be important to you? And how can you not reach across the aisle and work with your colleagues on the other side to address those environmental justice issues? And, Bob, you address them through legislation. And it starts with something I said earlier that's really pretty simple, but I think every person can understand it if we put it in these terms in this very complex space. Every person living and working in this nation, the greatest nation in the world, should have access to clean water, clean drinking water. If we agree on that, that ought to be pretty doggone simple. And so we we need to focus on, we did it through the Homeland Security Committee, national security issue, and we also talked about economic justice through the Judiciary Committee. But this is an issue that all of us, everybody, should care about, which includes and involves the least of these. We become better when the least of these become better. Yeah, I couldn't say any differently. I mean, I think, yeah, that deserves it. <laughs> no, I, I can't. I can't say anything any differently. I mean, you know, my view on what is the role of government is to ensure that everybody is treated equally. You know, both by government service and by the law, which is kind of relevant today. <laughs> um, so, yeah, well, there's nothing I would disagree with, with what you said. Okay, so the chief of the UN panel that just issued this report urged the world to reach net zero emissions by 2040. Uh, yeah, President Biden just approved the controversial ConocoPhillips Willow oil drilling project on the North Slope of Alaska. And he was applauded by Republicans during the State of the Union when he said, we're still going to need oil and gas for a while. So, Adam, I'm going to start with you. Can you talk about energy security and its relationship to dealing with the climate crisis? Yeah, I mean, I agree with the president in this issue. I think we are going to need energy for a while. And I think if you look at the growth of energy needs in the world, you know, there is every day more and more energy is required. So in many cases, some of the green energy that comes online can help to cover that delta. But this idea that we can, in essence, wish ourselves off of carbon-based energy tomorrow, we can't. And I think where we can see the most success in actually moving forward, I mean, look at U.S. carbon outputs obviously is, is slowly on a decline. The best way that we can move forward is to understand that today there is a need. We talk about equity and we talk about poor communities. High price of gas is regressive tax on poor communities. I can afford $10 a gallon gasoline. Most people in my district couldn't afford $10 a gallon gasoline. So in my mind, it's recognizing that you can't flip a switch tomorrow and change us to an entirely green economy. But we can do both in a way that gets us there as quickly as, as, as humanly possible. And so I agree with the president's decision on this. I also agree with him that we're going to need oil for some time in the near future. I also agree with him that it would be very nice to not need it tomorrow, and let's get there as soon as we possibly can. But I think that's the difficulty that we have as a country, and as we talk about this issue, 
is recognizing that maybe those of us that are financially better off, we can, we can be all for this, like, let's just shut down drilling. You know, when we do fill up the car, it's probably going to end up going to some dictator in the Middle East or Russia, um, which is, by the way, a huge national security problem. Right, The United States being the leading producer of energy is a huge national security benefit to the United States of soft power. It gives us the ability, for instance, to fight Russia in Ukraine through giving aid because we can help offset some of the costs to Europe in that and as well as investing in new energy. So yeah, I, the bottom line is this is a process that takes time. It is a process that, that will happen and it can't be done tomorrow. Yeah, Val, uh, President Biden has been criticized by some in his own party and by some environmentalists for moving ahead with that oil and gas drilling decision for saying we need oil and gas into the future. Uh, is, is he right? Uh, and where, where do you think most of the Democratic Party stands on this? You know, let us not forget that this, the Willow Project was um, started under or approved initially under President Trump. Um, President Biden initiated several executive orders really reiterating his opposition to the project. Uh, They were ruled unconstitutional uh, by the courts. I do understand the disappointment um, from certain groups and from members of the Democratic Party because it is contrary to what President Biden said he was going to do. But circumstances did change. Um, I do think we should focus on energy independence. We might argue all day long about how to get there. Russia's attack on Ukraine changed the circumstances on this issue. We do not want to be dependent on foreign entities for gas and oil, and we do not want our allies to be dependent. So was a campaign promise broken? Yes. Did circumstances change that changed the president's actions? Yes. But we never abandoned where we were trying to get, Bob, in terms of the reduction of emissions in a very aggressive way. This is a bump in the road, and we'll get past it. And do you think most Democrats that you served with in Congress would agree that you kind of need this approach that both pursues oil and gas for the immediate future as we transition? Is there a way, if we're doing it ourselves, is there a cleaner way to do it? I mean, I think Democrats fully understand that the president did not just wake up one day and say, oh, I'm going to go back on my campaign promise and support the Willow Project. I think Democrats understand how the president got there. But I also think, I know my Democratic colleagues, they're going to hold the president accountable for his commitment to clean energy and reducing emissions in this country. Can I, I, I want to add to that, too. Um, let's take Europe and let's take what happened with Ukraine and Russia. I mean, initially, we were pretty hampered in terms of some of the sanctions we could put on Russia because we were concerned that we'd end up with like $500 a barrel oil, which would have ground this economy, our economy, into an absolute halt. 
By the way, when you have declines in economic output, when you have people falling into poverty at greater rates, uh, you have a much dirtier economy. You can just see that around the world, right? Poorer countries typically have dirtier economies in, in, in terms of output, and it's because of you know cost of, of building whatever. But if when when you make a decision that we are going to use not military force against Russia to defend Ukraine. We'll give them give Ukraine the equipment they need, but we're going to use some of our soft power, our diplomatic power. That diplomatic power in many cases and in, in 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 this particular conflict, it was our ability to both export energy and our ability to help other countries get off of the dependence of Russian oil particularly. Uh, one of the areas I was really working on as I left Congress was Eastern Europe basically has an energy grid that's set up to feed off of Russia because after the Cold War, during the Cold War, is being able to get them off. And by the way, United States and how we produce energy is much cleaner than how Russia produces energy. So I think it's looking at those incremental gains, understanding that, as Val said, this is a balancing act. I'm certain that President Biden did not enjoy uh, what he did, but he recognized to his credit that this was a very different moment. Yeah. Let's talk about another potential barrier to action here. How strong is the political influence of the fossil fuel industry? And is it equally strong in both parties? Valium? Well, <laughs> uh, I think that the fossil fuel industry is still, uh, their influence is still pretty strong. Uh, in politics. Um, now, my perception is that it is particularly strong in the Republican Party and not so much on the Democratic side uh, of the aisle. Um, is that changing? Perhaps my colleague. Nope. Okay, <laughs> all right. Yeah. And, and so if you are dependent, as we talk about uh, energy independence here, if you are dependent, you are dependent on a certain um, industry to finance your political future that is contributing to our environmental problems, then that is a barrier to uh, moving forward. I'm so here's where I'm at on it. I, yes, it's, I, I think everything you said is accurate. I'm less of a believer anymore with the amount of money that's coming to politics that a $5,000 pack check is influencing too much anymore. Where, where, and I'll digress for 30 seconds and get back to this. Where this country has a problem is we're becoming an oligarchy. We're becoming a political oligarchy. In Illinois, we elected a Republican governor who was a billionaire. So they had to put a Democratic governor who ended up beating the Republican. He had to also be a billionaire so he could spend to compete with the Republican billionaire. So then the Republicans this last time had to go out and try to find a billionaire who actually lost in the primary, by the way, to a, be a really crazy dude. But, uh, and so that happens too in the political thing. So I can raise as a member of Congress or as a candidate, we can raise up to a certain amount from individuals, a certain amount from PAC. And, you know, if we have a really good fundraising cycle, it's two, three million dollars, let's say. But then one of those oligarchs, so to speak, can come in and decide to start a super PAC and spend 20 million dollars in your race, either against or for you. That is a huge problem in this country, by the way. Yeah. Um, and that takes, by the way, constitutional amendment. So let's be very clear how hard that is to deal with. So I do think where I kind of see the influence, for instance, of fossil fuel or really any industry in any district with any member of Congress is more about if I – for instance, I had a really strong ethanol district. 
I was very supportive of ethanol and biodiesel. Why? Well, because it was very important for my district. It was my job to defend those industries. If you look at a member of Congress from Texas, they are elected to represent their industries, Oklahoma, etc. So I think that's where some of it comes from. And I think it's less like it used to be where it's like, well, I got to raise money for my election. Therefore, I will be pro-oil. I think more it's now like I'm pro-oil because that's my district. And then the funds follow. And, and, and Adam, I agree wholeheartedly that there is too much money uh, in politics, no doubt. Yep. But when there are those who say uh, corporations or people, like an individual citizens, that the individual citizen and the corporation are the same, uh, and when we look at dark money in politics where you can write the biggest check in the world and not have to identify who you are, those that's a whole nother issue. But regardless of who's giving the money, it is to buy influence on you, your votes and your policies. And we know that the fossil fuel industry does just that. Not you personally, but <laughs> those who accept big money from fossil fuel. Okay. We talked about sustainability as a balancing act. Uh, so first to you, Adam, you're, you're the district you served is home, if I'm not mistaken, to four nuclear power plants, miles of windmills, hydropower plants, ethanol, as you just said, and biodiesel plants. Uh, Let's begin with nuclear. How important do you believe nuclear is, and you alluded to this a little bit earlier when you talked about Germany, as a power source of the future and why? So I think nuclear is essential for the future. You know, we always had those debates in the 70s or 80s about is nuclear safe? And, of course, there are examples where nuclear is not safe. Um, But every time, so when you had Fukushima, for instance, uh, every nuclear power plant in the world had new standards in terms of backup generation, in terms of backup generators, even in the middle of Illinois where you're not going to get a flood or a a tsunami, uh, still backup generators had to be placed at a high level. So if a magic tsunami comes into Illinois, and I think that's a good thing to have those kinds of rules. I also am excited about the future of small module reactors, right? So powering smaller areas. You think about it. Every U.S. Navy ship has a nuclear reactor on it. We can do this safely. But it's also very green. It's very green energy. It is high baseload power. The problem with nuclear at the moment is it's not priced to be competitive with things like cheap natural gas. And I think there is a role for the government to come in, by the way, and to ensure the sustainability of nuclear, even when it's priced out of a market in cheap natural gas, because I kind of consider this an area of national defense. If you put all your eggs in one basket simply based on what's cheap at the moment, when that energy source becomes not cheap anymore, you've now put yourself at risk. I Look, my... 1850, my family came here from Germany. So sorry to the Germans, I want to say this, but um, they made a huge mistake, I think, in their energy. And they recognize that now when they made a decision to shut down all of their nuclear power plants because of Fukushima. And now they find themselves playing catch up. That's again, that's why they had Nord Stream 1 and 2. And so I think nuclear is essential for the future here. I think America has got to lead the world in nuclear because our competitors, some are good, some are not so good. And frankly, we do a better job of controlling nuclear nonproliferation around the world than many. And I'll just say briefly on top of that as well, nuclear reprocessing and recycling. It's expensive, but I think it's something that we have to really focus on as a country. Because right now, as you know, when nuclear rods are spent, their half-lights like they'll be around for like a gajillion years. And so we need to be able to reprocess and recycle those down to shorten those half-life. 
Val, nuclear? Yeah, I would agree, um, Bob, with my colleague. Uh, I think that when we think about what's the wave of the future, I think it's solar, wind, and certainly nuclear. Figuring out the cost and how can we do it cheaper uh, is going to be the challenge. It kind of takes us back to where we uh, began. But certainly, uh, America has to be and has the opportunity and the capability to be the leader in the world on this issue. And how do you get public opinion to the point where when you have a three-mile island or you have a Fukushima there isn't a huge outcry, as there was in Germany, that we got to shut down the, all these nuclear power plants. How do you get people to the point where they feel some sense of reassurance that, yeah, there's been this accident, but it's not going to happen very often. It's going to be very, very rare, and we can contain it. Well, I think, first off, I think public opinion has, has shifted largely on nuclear. I don't think you see, like, you know, it used to be the far left would be out protesting nuclear. I don't think you really see that anymore. Obviously, I don't think the right's protesting nuclear. Um, but yeah, I mean, you may have incidents still into the future. I think the key is to show, I mean, actually, nuclear, when it comes to, like, having issues is is extremely safe in reality as, as long as you make sure you have these systems as a backup. How many of you guys have seen the, uh, what was the uh, HBO special? Chernobyl. Yeah, I was, I was trying. Um, and you saw that a lot of the reason Chernobyl happened, and it was actually pretty close to a world-ending scenario, but the reason that happened was because, frankly, the communist government took a lot of shortcuts in terms of cost, and they, and they met that. So I think the key, you may not convince everybody it's safe. It's a scary thing because people don't fully understand how nuclear works. All it does is create heat that creates steam that turns a turbine. Um, but I, I think it's just con- it's constantly for people that are interested explaining why it works and and if you have an issue, making sure you're doing things to take care of what caused that. Okay. Let's talk about some other potential energy sources and, and ways to mitigate the climate crisis. Talk about electric vehicles and charging infrastructure. How do we power them and make electric vehicles affordable? And how can we do it equitably? Are Americans ready to make that kind of change? I think Americans are ready. Not everybody. But I think we're doing a decent job, and certainly the legislation that we pass, the investment in electric vehicles, um, certainly gets us moving quicker uh, in the right direction. Bob, it comes back to educating the public, though. Um, and I think we sometimes, you know, we shouldn't want to, as elected officials, want to go any place without the American people being willing to go with us. That's what leadership is truly about, and it's educating them to the benefits. If we want to address our environmental issues, electric vehicles is a significant way uh, to do that. So educating them, yes, when it's new, there are always a lot of kinks that have to be worked out. We've got a long way to go, even as it pertains to electric vehicles and the infrastructure. Some of the investments in the legislation is investing in the infrastructure to make it work, to make it more accessible for uh, the American people. We think about some technology when there were only a handful of people not that long ago who could afford to get there. We think about solar energy. There were only a handful of people who could turn their businesses or their homes uh, into solar power, to utilize solar power, driving down the costs. Uh, investing in our technology, investing in infrastructure is the way we get it done. 
Yeah, and I agree. I think I think on electric vehicle and, and charging infrastructure, I think it's actually pretty easy. I mean, any place that has electricity, in theory, you just have to put a station in. I have a hybrid, by the way. I'm a good Republican, aren't I? Um, <laughs> thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, it's uh, I yeah. Thank you for the applause. I appreciate that. <laughs> no, but I think I think the uh, you know the charging infrastructure is easy, and you see it. I'm sure here in California it's everywhere, but you see it anywhere. You go to parking garage, there's like charging infrastructure. Any if you're on the interstate, I'm sure any rest area you could pull over and there's charging infrastructure there. What I do worry about a little bit is the dependence on foreign sources of rare earth minerals that we have on these electrical issues. Okay, China is continuing to grow its its monopoly in Africa, in the Near East, and everywhere in terms of rare earth minerals. So there's two things on that. Number one is we can't, on the one hand, be fighting for electric vehicles, fighting for energy independence, and also fighting against mining some of our own rare earth minerals, right? That's a debate that has to happen. Secondarily, there is a lot of good stuff going on, and I really believe in what the government's doing through DOE on some of this stuff in terms of how do we build batteries that don't rely on those rare earth minerals. And there's a lot of pro- – I, I truly believe that within five or ten years, frankly, we're going to have good battery capacity that, frankly, relies on far less than what we see. Uh, but, yeah, that is a big concern of mine in terms of what ha- – how do we – we talk about the CHIPS Act. We talk about you know our, our sources of protecting American manufacturing. This is a huge area when – an F-35 has 300 pounds on it of rare earth minerals that don't come from the United States of America. Um, it, it's, it really is a focus that I think we have to be focused on. Yeah, you, you talked about the, the uncertainty of wind and solar. Other people say, well, sometimes the wind doesn't blow, sometimes yeah. the sun doesn't shine. What role should they play in the transition that we have to, to, to make? I think, I think you mean the role of like solar and wind? Yeah. I think it's huge. I think it's it's huge. The issue with solar and wind is less about – we know it produces the energy. The thing is if you look at how energy – how the energy grid goes and how it's bid and how you know power works, um, you have these peaks, right? Here's, so let's say it's a hot day. Here's the peak of energy use. At night, it goes down. So what happens? Well, wind tends to blow a little more at night. So you have more energy production over here, solar during the day. But what you can't do is necessarily – produce energy at that perfect level and that's where things like battery storage when we can get there when it works where you can store stuff done that way transmission can you transmit energy from illinois for instance to iowa if iowa's higher needs and illinois is producing and lastly these i this idea of natural gas peaker plants so there was a plant in my district basically it's this turbine and it can come online with jet fuel or not with natural gas and create a whole bunch of energy. It came online five days a year and made enough money to exist. And so what would happen is on those areas, so if we have a lot of wind and we have a lot of solar, there may be days where we have high peak, high requirements for energy, low production. And then you have this fairly cheap infrastructure called peaker plants that can exist to cover that delta when that happens. I think that's the intermediary step. But solar and wind, to me, is going to play a very essential role in the future. Val, any comment before we turn to no, student No, I, I agree wholeheartedly, and I think uh, this is the third time I think it's solar, wind, and nuclear energy. I think that is the wave of the future. We have some kinks that we have to work out in terms of storage and uh, transporting and all, but... 
I think that's the direction we clearly should be going in. Okay. Now we're going to turn to the audience. Uh, let's have students only, only students at the mic on my left here. Uh, students and others can line up at the mic on the right. We'll have about a half an hour for questions and answers. So to fit in as many people as possible, let's keep the questions and answers brief, and let's make sure they're questions, not comments. Uh, our first question is from our High Point University watch party. Why be concerned about a degree or two change in the average global temperature? Who will be affected most, and does a one or two degree change make that much of a difference? In Florida, we're dealing with um, sea level rise in South Florida, severe flooding in South Florida. It is the result of a one-inch change over decades. Um, So it can make a difference. And as long as we do nothing, it does not correct itself. It just gets worse. You know, as we have this debate, as we talked about earlier, that is the reality. That's what the science proves for us. That's what the experience demonstrates to us. One degree in Florida, also we're seeing because of global warming, we're seeing more intense weather, uh, hotter days, extremely hot days that you all know all of the health issues that that creates, especially for our populations in Florida. And so it may not seem like it's critical, but it is a part of, it has to be addressed if we're going to continue to deal with our flooding issues and save lives as well. Yeah, I'll just trust the science on this. If one or two degrees, they say, makes a difference, I believe it. Yeah. Okay, we'll take a question from here. Even with zero GHG emissions, uh, no more greenhouse gases up into the atmosphere, we still have a greenhouse effect to deal with. It seems to be causing a lot of problems with the ecosystems in the world that we rely on. Uh, For example, fishing for food. The coral reefs are collapsing, and we're watching them collapse. Do you think enough is being done to address this ecological collapse that we're currently dealing with. Are you from Florida? Because you certainly sound like you're from Florida talking about the coral reefs. No, I'm from LA. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Um, So to to answer your question, I guess we're not doing enough. You know, this is one of those issues, and I'm I'm so glad that Adam and I have been invited to be a part of this discussion uh, today. I think when we look at some of America's greatest accomplishments, we've lost ground because we did not see it as an ongoing issue. We, we, we've reached our goals, net zero emissions, for example, and we celebrated and we moved on. But this has got to be something that it's got to be an ever, every day uh, kind of issue because the environment is ever changing. And if we're going to the fisheries in Florida, problems there as well. If we're going to make a serious difference, then we've got to stay on top of it every day. So, no, we're not doing enough. Thank you for reminding us. Yeah, I don't just, I mean, I, I agree. I think, look, it's, uh, when I was a kid, the big scare was the hole in the ozone layer, right? And, and we have done a lot to mitigate that. I don't actually know what the latest is on the hole in the ozone. I haven't heard about it in a while, so it's probably okay. We're doing better. Um, but, uh, that's why we don't use styrofoam and everything anymore. Or hairspray, I guess, whatever. But uh, yeah, it was hairspray was the big one. But yeah, I, I think you know to the extent we can do more, we we obviously have to do more. I mean, the great the the amazing thing about the Earth is we are the exact distance. Now nah, I'm a 
I, I happen to be a, a re- somewhat religious person. And so I'm, I'm always amazed at how perfectly we were placed by the sun to create this perfect environment. But regardless of what your religious view is, uh, it is a very delicate balance. And uh, I think everything we do has an effect on that delicate balance. So to the extent that we can make sure that we do no harm and that we leave the earth off better than we found it, the better. Okay, over here. Thank you. Hi, my question is how can we keep rural communities engaged in the fight for sustainability and, and preventing climate change? As I represent a lot of rural areas and I got to tell you, I actually, the rural communities are some of the most um, environmentally engaged folks. I mean, if you look at sustainable farming, uh, you look at during the dust bowls in the uh, 1930s, it was the farm farmers themselves that came in and figured out, you know, what do tree rows do? How do you preserve soil layers and all that kind of stuff? There's obviously a lot that, you know, I even look at things like runoff, right? What these agricultural communities have done to improve. There's always more to do, but just my kind of biased view is there are some of the best environmentalists you'll actually find out there. Elizabeth? Yes. It's good to see you again. <laughs> good to see you again. Uh, um, I th- yeah, you know, when we talk about environmental justice, let's be sure to include uh, rural areas. Uh, I think that our response to COVID really put a spotlight on some of the gaps and vulnerabilities as it pertains to rural areas uh, getting the services that they need from government. And so we, you know, we have to remember some of the challenges, unique challenges of being a part of rural communities and having access to services. So they should be on our list of uh, addressing environmental justice issues. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Connor. Thank you for being here. My question for you is kind of related to a little bit more about your assignments. We were talking earlier about nuclear power. We know that to solve any of these challenges for climate change, we've got to work with partners around the world in many countries with large populations. When we're talking about nuclear power or other sensitive technologies, what are your thoughts on sharing these with other countries, particularly with nuclear power with other countries and the risks it pays to homeland security, but also in, in the importance in, in foreign affairs and how we're going to approach that on the international stage? Well, we do, we do the gold standard of uh, our nuclear agreements, and it's part of the reason why I want to be the world leader in that because other countries don't. And so you look at, for instance, uh, I'm just because my mind's blinking, there's one that we actually call the gold standard one, two, three agreements. And basically what that requires is it'll be United States companies, American companies that come build these plants, in some cases operate, train people to run them, but they don't keep our technology. And, uh, and so I think we do a really good job of that on nuclear nonproliferation at the moment. Um, some other countries don't. And I think that's why it's essential for us to be the world leader in that area because, frankly – it's put us at a disadvantage because some countries are willing to go sign a nuclear agreement with anybody, anytime, anywhere without restrictions. We don't have that. So it's put us at a bit of an economic disadvantage. But countries that do operate and run U.S.-based nuclear power plants have a great safety record, and they also don't proliferate that, that technology. I agree with Adam. And the other point that you bring to our attention is that it is a global issue. And it does have to be addressed globally. Thank you, Connor. Thank you. Next question. So both of you guys mentioned the outsized influence that money holds in politics. And um, I'm a student. I'm a high school freshman. So obviously I'm not a billionaire or or an elected official. Not yet. (laughs) I'm not either. (laughs) So I wanted to ask, what can me and my peers, like how can we make a difference about the climate crisis? 
okay, the the money in politics, uh, we've got to continue to do the work to get money out of politics, right? Because it's about protecting people. It is not about the candidate who has the ability to raise the most money and serve special interests. So, um, you know, there are a lot of ways that you can get involved in this issue. Um, yeah, you're young and your life is is way ahead of you. But even the programs that we're involved in today, the Common Ground Committee, looking for bipartisan issues. And, you know, you may not want to get involved in politics, but remember, politics touches every aspect of your life. We're here to talk about the environment today. It is a major one. So supporting organizations that volunteering for organizations that really want to find common sense solutions to deal with some of America's toughest problems. And I'm sure the university here has a list of organizations that you can get involved in to support them. I would, I would add to that, you know, it's very tempting to want to be like, there's an injustice. I need to go out and solve it. I don't know what I can do personally to solve it. Solving injustices are very rarely things one person can do. There are things movements do and teams do. And so I think it's recognizing that if you don't see necessarily the path where you can go out and be that person, can you be parts of an organization that are making a difference? And people making a difference over time, organizations making a collective difference, um, that's how you change things. So I think it's it's recognizing that even though times you can get frustrated, I get frustrated with a lot of what's going on in politics if you read my Twitter feed. But I also <laughs> recognize that all I can do is control what I can control and be able to look in the mirror at the end of the day. Right thank there. you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Brandon. And uh, first of all, I just want to thank you, all, thank you all for coming out here and speaking with all of us today. Thank you. And just being open to discussion when it is such a, it's a time with such like political divide and especially to representative um, Mr. Kinzinger. I have so much respect for you for signing out to your platform. And thank you. Yeah. So uh, I had a question about misinformation and how that kind of plays a role in politics. I know that over the past few decades, there's been um, many um, with the growth of media, of course, and uh, like how the video mentioned um, fast, how um, information is so like readily accessible and of course it's a right information that is being spread but there's also wrong kinds of information that is being spread to all sorts of people and that's been um, seen with activist groups like Americans for Prosperity with like the far right groups and I just want to ask how can those um, information tactics be um, fought against? I think truth always prevails so truth first. Um, secondarily, I think we live in a new world where we've kind of been, for the first time, we have computers that outperform our brains. First time ever, right? And that's our phones. And that you hear about that with like, I'm in California, so like algorithms, a cool thing to say now, I guess, or whatever. But like, you know, if you're on Twitter or you're on Facebook and it's sending stuff at you because it's already predicting what you don't even know you're predicting. So it's a different world that we live in. I am heartened frankly, by the Dominion lawsuit against Fox News, because I look at it and say, look, we do live, we have to preserve the First Amendment, okay? You have a right to lie. That is your right. Um, (laughs) But you don't have a right to knowingly lie that causes damage and, you know, whatever this case is about. So I think within the context of the First Amendment, 
suing for actual damages to lies and knowing misinformation is something that can actually put these organizations maybe within within the wheelhouse of where they can actually be committed to some version of truth. Um, look, you may have some of you in, in here may have parents that think very differently than you. There's nothing you can do about that. You can have a talk, a discussion with them if you want to, but the best thing I recommend is just to love your parents and put some of that stuff aside and just be committed to truth for yourself personally. I had to tell you, there is a bigger hunger for truth out there than it seems right now. Uh, I would just say that the truth still matters and there are no alternative facts. And look, we all have uh, our First Amendment rights. There's no doubt about that. Um, if my neighbor um, tells a lie, uh, okay, nobody cares. It might tell the lie to me and the neighbor on the other side. But if you are in a powerful position and you tell a lie, it can make a difference. And, you know, it goes back to holding people accountable and not acting like what you know is a lie, what you know is untrue, didn't happen or it doesn't matter or it does not exist. And we were together earlier in our smaller group. We talked about holding people accountable and having a zero tolerance for certain things. Look what misinformation has done to us. We have a lot of serious issues that we need to be solving. But look at the misinformation that we have been exposed to over the last few years. It has done damage. When we're arguing with scientists uh, in this area, whether the science is true or not, so zero tolerance, right? And if you are going to be a part of a group or an organization, you're in the classroom, zero tolerance for misinformation. It may seem harmless, but it can do tremendous harm. And we're going to be dependent. Now is the time for all good men and women to come to the aid of our country. We're going to be depending on you to stand up and carry the banner for to help us as as um, someone said earlier today, to help us form that more perfect union. It's on you. It will be soon. And so misinformation is not harmless. It's ugly. It's dangerous. And I expect and depend on this generation standing at the microphone to stand up against it and fight against it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I would add, by the way, that misinformation was for a long time a barrier to taking action on climate change. So uh, here's another question from High Point University, then I'll get back to both sides here. person says, my middle name is Ocean, and I have always cared about our oceans and seas. So how do climate issues and rising temperatures affect our oceans, our sea life, and what we've already talked about, coral reefs? We were just talking about that yeah. in Florida, uh, in South Florida, uh, where many of you hopefully come to vacation. Uh, <laughs> we have significant flooding in South Florida, and it's directly related to sea level rise. Our Everglades, the quality of water in our Everglades, Florida's treasures, our streams, our rivers, our Everglades uh, are all in jeopardy because of global warming and climate change. And so we do have to, as I said earlier, because we did uh, talk about this, um, we have not done enough. And we have to continue to believe in science, put politics aside and take action to take care of this earth. 
Uh, Adam, you talked earlier about your your faith and religion. Yeah, I think look at the tornadoes and in the Midwest and in the South. Storms in Florida, hurricanes are becoming more intense and more severe. People are dying. And so we do have to. Have we done enough? No, we have not. But now is a good time for us to all get involved in helping to protect this wonderful earth that we have. We're not going to get another one. Uh, we got to take care of this one. Okay. Over here. Hello. My name's Diane. I'm Hi, Diane. 57th grade. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if either of you have heard anybody ever come up with something about waves, harnessing the power of waves. We have heard about the power of waves in Florida, um, but we've only had those kind of as we were making the list of alternative energy sources. But no work has seriously been done uh, in that area. Yeah, we don't have a lot of waves in Illinois, yeah. but we we do have a lot of hydropower, obviously, with the rivers and stuff. And I think, I mean, to me, it sounds intriguing. I don't, I don't know enough about it, but uh, tides are really powerful. They just and keep coming. It's on the yep. list. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Over here. Hello, my name is Savannah. Um, I'm an environmental studies student, so I'm very happy to be here. Thank you both for coming. Um, I wanted to ask about your views. Somebody touched on it earlier, but um, a little more if you could expand on your views on foreign policy and how, as an international community, we can get other countries on board because, like you said, at the end of the day, it's a global issue. Um, and while we're working on it here, how do we get other countries to work on it with us? Well, we had an agreement. Um, <laughs> the Paris Accord agreement. I, I mean, I certainly think that uh, it is a global issue and we've got to attack it globally, right? But as we both have indicated, uh, America has to take the lead. We should be the world leader uh, in this space. And so we need to get back to, as we hold people accountable, we have to hold other nations accountable Adam talked about the agreements and what they need to say and to make sure that the product, the, the finished product is what we need it to be based on our standards. But this is an issue that we have to attack globally and we have to sit down with our allies around the world. I think we enter into agreements that help to address climate change and global warming and we can do that. Yeah, I just said, like, I agree. I think, I think the United States and, and Europe and our allies together have a significant amount of the economy. That gives us a lot of power in determining some of these agreements and things. But let's just be clear. I mean, if China doesn't want to do anything about the environment, they won't, right? And what, we can't invade them and make them. And uh, so I think, you know, it, I think it's a real challenge. I think you have put your finger on a real challenge. Which is, you know, if it's a if it's a country that has a lot of economic need and they decide it doesn't matter what their carbon output is, they're going to build more coal power plants. Not much we can do about it except to continue to talk about the science and hope they make a difference. But it is a massive problem. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Both. Over here. 
Hello, my name is Jerry. I'm a freshman in high school. So I was just wondering, um, concerning electric vehicles, it's estimated that 95% of electric vehicle batteries can be recycled. Do you know what's being done right now to do that? Because I feel like that would be more effective than mining rare earth minerals from the earth. I don't know, and no. uh, but I think it's a great idea. Yeah, and I think electric, if there's one problem, at least in my mind, with electric vehicles, it is the batteries. But I, I don't have any information on that. I don't know where we need to go with that. But that's a good thing to keep thinking. It about. really is. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, if it Jerry. can be done, we ought to do it. Yeah, obviously. Yep. Thank you. Thanks, Jerry. Hi, my name is Isaac. Thank you both for being here. It seems like there's a new emergency every day and there's a new fire that needs to be put out. Um, I was just wondering, what do you guys think like how do you continue to lead and push forward on these issues of climate change and bring communities together despite the fact that um or acknowledging the fact that you know issues of homelessness and issues of gun violence and issues all these other things keep coming up that feel like they need to be addressed right now immediately as well Isaac, thank you so much for that. Um, and y'all invite me back to talk about gun violence because that's a whole nother issue. Um, but you're right. We have a, a ton of issues, critical issues that we are dealing with. But as I said earlier, climate change should never be one of those issues that we pick up and put down. That it has to be a every day, every year, every decade for centuries that we're addressing of this issue of climate change. While we deal with our deficit and gun violence and hunger and health care and all of the other critical issues that we are dealing with, I think that we will get uh, where we need to be. With I, I'm praying with a lot of the issues you just listed. But I don't think I think we have to have the attitude as we work on climate change that we will n- never get where we need to be to keep the energy and the work uh, being done. But remember who we are. We're the United States in the, um, of America. We can do anything, I believe, that we have the political will to do when we lay our differences aside and build that agenda that doesn't just work for the next election. Because there's obviously too much of that going on. But an agenda that works for the American people and outlives the three of us on this stage. So thank you, Isaac. And I know we have a limited time, so I'll keep it really short and just say, ditto. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think we can fit in two more quick questions. My name is Sean Tanu. First of all, thank you so much for this event. My major isn't even close to what is being done here, but... Mm -hmm. I got to learn so much from your guys' talk. Um, One thing you had mentioned is that every day we need a little bit more power because new things are being built, new companies are coming about. The United States economy is very much built on consumerism, but some of the things that we build sometimes require too much water or too much power. Uh, Like avocados, for example, dry out some of our, our fields. So should we be promoting people to consume less and buy less at the deficit of our economy or how do we find the good balance between these two things? I think it's a great question. I don't yes. think it's a role for the government necessarily, but I think as individuals, uh, yes. I mean, more stuff, by the way. Every day I've, I, you know, or at stages in my life, I make more money than I did the time prior, and I've never been happier because of it, right? More money, more stuff doesn't make you happy. 
It makes stuff easier, but it doesn't make you happy. What makes you happy is the friends you have, the family you have, the faith you have, whatever those core values are to you. So while I don't think that's a role for government, I think you're right on it, which is if you find yourself personally being driven by consumerism, maybe reevaluate how you how you are, if that makes what sense. What is your major? Um, I'm a business arts and technology major. Congratulations on that. <laughs> uh, I will never tell you as an elected official or as a citizen just to not buy more stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I will talk to you about being responsible. And, and certainly as we protect our environment, there are a lot of things that individual people can do in their homes, on the jobs, every week in their neighborhoods that can help protect our environment. They may seem like little things, but it's like the one degree temperature and the one inch, uh, in sea level rise. It makes a difference. And so, um, Adam is right. I think that there's some, there, the role of government, that might be a stretch, but to, talk to you about being a good citizen that helps protect this good thing that we have here. I will always do that. Thank you. Quick question. I'll try to make it brief. Hi, thank you so much for being here. I'm Avery. My question is about, um, does Congress ever have any conversations about international economic development, specifically how countries that are developing can sort of skip their reliance on coal and oil and go straight to renewable energies? Yeah, all the time. I mean, it's it's when we talk about uh, development on the Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, it's not just how do we get people out of poverty. It's how do we get people out of poverty, frankly, on green energy and things like that. Our, co- our competitors, for instance, China Belt and Road Initiative, that's not an interest they have. It's something that we do. And so it's it's something that I think in Congress has thought about a lot. We talk about it all the time. Let's do something about it. Yeah. I'm yeah. really sorry, but that's all the time we have for Q&A. I want to throw one last question at the two of you for a brief comment. What gives you hope that we can meet the climate challenge, and how important is it to have common ground discussions like this about that issue? The common ground discussions are critical. Uh, When we talk about our similarities and what we agree on as opposed to starting with what we disagree on. Um, Bob, I have hope. Because I really do believe that this is the greatest country. I've seen this country do some amazing things. If we think historically about some things that we have been able to accomplish, how did we get them done? We got them done because of the will, the determination, the intellect of the American people coming together, wanting a better America and a better world. So I really do. I believe not just because I'm from Orlando, Florida. I believe in us because I've seen what we can do. And I really do believe we can do anything if we lay our political differences aside and put all of our energy into the American people and invest in something that is bigger than us. We've done it because we have done it before. Climate change is a crisis It is a national security issue, and we have the ability to do something about it, and I really do believe that we will. Adam? I have plenty of hope, and I'll tell you, I look at Ukraine, and I see people that are artists and business people and machinists fighting together to defend themselves for freedom. Mm. I think that human ability to say we have to do something when our our very nature is at threat – 
exist in you guys and it exists on the issue of climate. Uh, but do not underestimate the role that you will play in this because every generation gets a torch passed to them and it's your time now. So thank you for having us. <laughs> thank you. Uh, uh, Thanks to the students at our watch party, every one of you here today, everyone watching on Zoom and Facebook, and special thanks for an enlightening and lively exchange to two extraordinary leaders who I wish still were in Congress, Val Demings and Adam Kinziger. Finally, let me turn the floor over to the CEO of the Common Ground Committee, for some closing thoughts. Bruce, and by the way, after he's done, we'll have a short break, and then we'll resume at 3 o'clock. Bob, thank you so much. This was such a wonderful conversation that you guys gave us today, and it certainly lived up to the Common Ground Committee motto of bringing light, not heat, to public discourse. And after listening today, I hope that this discussion amongst these incredible panelists here has given you a sense of hope that we can bridge our political divides, and perhaps some inspiration to engage in your own conversations, a little more understanding, and with an eye towards a more positive outcome. And we really value your input on this event, so I'm going to ask if you would please take our, sh- our survey. that You can access using the QR code here. Also, uh, there's one on our website. We're partnering with another organization called Ecology. So for every survey that's completed, they will plant five trees. So please... Share your feedback. Deepest gratitude to the Dornsife and Wrigley Center, especially Kami Akavan and Nicole Pompeo, uh, Christy Plaza, Jessica Dutton, and Catherine Royster, and to our panelists. Thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. We're better educated. You have inspired us. And just wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.